Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Inside the DriveHuber.com studios on a Wednesday here in Indianapolis is the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison behind the ones and twos. Thanks for spending part of your afternoon with us here on The Fan. We've mentioned it throughout the offseason and it's been a real conversation point for the better part of the last two years. It's an arms race at quarterback within the AFC. The Colts hoping to one day be a part of that conversation, but a long road to go. At least they have, in theory, their franchise quarterback and Anthony Richardson to take us big picture amongst the AFC. We're joined now by Matt Verderam of SI Now, NFL staff writer, does a great job covering the league as a whole, and also formerly of fan sided and formerly of Arrowhead Addict. Uh, Matt, I'm a massive Chiefs fan, so I've appreciated your work over the years and uh, very happy for you making the jump to Sports Illustrated. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad that uh, they, they haven't uh, seen fit to get rid of me yet. So things are going good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. We, we, we kind of alluded to it a little bit there at the start. I want to first look big picture within the NFL and everything that's happened this offseason. Chiefs are obviously still at the top of the mountain, but when you look around at the moves that have been made this offseason and the established quarterbacks that are already there, plus adding the Jets in there with Aaron Rodgers, is there a shift amongst the, I don't know, power-making moves that are made to keep up with the likes of Kansas City, Cincinnati, and Buffalo? You know, I don't think... Putting aside Rodgers for a second, because obviously the Jets, big upgrade there over over what they had a quarterback last year. Putting this, the Jets to the side, this was a really unimpactful offseason from the standpoint of free agency was atrocious this year compared to most years. Right? I mean, there just were not a lot of guys who changed addresses who really moved the needle. I mean, I like Javon Hargrave as much as the next guy, but does Javon Hargrave going to the Niners make them – uh, a favorite any more than they already were, maybe a little bit, but I don't know that it was a ton, and he was probably the, the best free agent out on the market. Um, I think that the Jets are clearly better. They should at least be a playoff team, although the AFC, that, that's no easy feat. I will say this. I think the most underrated addition to any team this offseason is Vic Fangio in Miami. He is going to make that defense good, along with Jalen Ramsey. And if that defense can play and two is healthy, they're a problem. Like, there's a real case to be made that they're the best team in that division, which is, again, a, a very good division. Um, but I don't, I don't think there are these teams other than maybe Miami and the Jets. You'll look at just say they made a huge move. There's going to be so much better or worse than they were a year ago. Matt, when you look at where the Colts are, and me and Jimmy have argued over this, and he's a Chiefs fan, I have to remind him that we're in Indianapolis and we have to talk about the Colts. <laughs> but I've lived these quarterback struggles, okay? I understand. I understand what Indianapolis is going through. <laughs> when you look at what the Colts have to weigh as far as bringing Anthony Richardson along, when to start him, things like that, um, yeah. how do you view that whole decision that will obviously paint the picture of their season? So, look, Shane Steichen comes in from Philadelphia and he brings with him Gardner Minshew, who's one of the best backup quarterbacks in the NFL. I would argue he's even probably better than a handful of starters around the league. Um, he can come in and be a stabilizing force, and he's going to be a great guy in the room, going to help Richardson. Perfect guy for them. I, I think that was a great signing. I think he's going to be in there. He'll probably start the season as the number one guy. And then, look, if you're Steichen, 
you're going to kind of put a little bit at a time on Richardson's plate until you get to a point at some juncture in the year, or maybe if the team isn't playing particularly well, or you feel like Richardson's really made the leap when you're watching him in practice. Maybe you go, okay, you know what? This is a good time to make the change. Um, I really think that Steichen and Richardson are going to be very, very good together. I don't know that this year is going to be that year because Steichen's never been a head coach, and Richardson did not throw 900 passes between college and high school. His talent is immense, but it is a big jump to make for anybody. I don't care if you were a three- or four-year starter in college. You're talking about a guy in Richardson who, look, when you watch his film, it's evident how, how much he can do. But I think there's a lot of growing to be done. I could see the Colts being a team that's at the bottom of the standings this year, but yet you walk away from it by the end of the season going, you know what, like the coach, really like the quarterback, the future's really bright, even if the wins aren't necessarily there this season. Matt, that's been the ongoing conversation that we've had in regard to some of the veterans within the Colts locker room that I get it. Guys like DeForest Buckner started their career in San Francisco and he doesn't want to be a part of another rebuild. He doesn't like that word. And I get that. I understand that there's a balance of keeping everybody happy in the locker room, also understanding the real trajectory the Colts are on. They're not in a boat like Miami is, like Buffalo is, like Cincinnati, like Kansas City. They're two or three tiers beyond that trying to figure out their own blueprint. When you look at Anthony Richardson and you look at the decision Shane Steichen is going to have to make, assuming he grasps Shane Steichen's offense to a point where they look at what you just mentioned, the lack of reps in college, he needs reps, real-time works what's going to help him. Let's start him week one, week two, week three, whatever it is. The decision on Minshew can't be well, he might win us three more games this year at the cost of development of Richardson, right? No question. And, and that's why, look, to me, I know maybe some Colts fans don't want to hear this, or maybe some have already kind of accepted this. Their success this year, to me, has nothing to do with their record. Now, look, they just shock everybody, and they're good. That's great. But I look at the Bears last season. Now, the Bears ended up with the number one overall pick. But I'm based out here not too far outside Chicago – Everybody here is thrilled to death and, and can't wait to watch the Bears this year because Justin Fields is like he can really play. And there's a thought process of like, all right, finally. Now, now you want to talk about teams being a franchise quarterback. They haven't had a franchise quarterback <laughs> since the advent of television. Okay, so they, they've been dying for a quarterback. But that team was terrible last year. But they, were in a lot, they were in a lot of the games. Fields really looked like he could play. And if you're the Bears, you went in the offseason, all right, we've got a ton of cast space. Let's make some moves. And I think if you're the Colts, I don't care if you go 4-13. and 13. I mean, if Richardson plays, let's say he plays 10 games, and he really looks, even if he's wrong, but he really, like, you're watching the game, all right, this guy can play. Like, this guy's got some things to learn, but he's, he's big time. And you feel like Steichen can coach? I don't care what the record is. Like, at that point, that, that's a successful season. Now, maybe it's not in the eyes of a guy like a Leonard or a Nelson or a Buckter. Okay, I get that. It shouldn't be successful for them. But – that's reality for where the Colts are. It's the same thing for the Houston Texans, by the way. I'd say the same thing for them. If Stroud's good and Ryan's looks like he can coach, I don't care if they win three games. That's fine. That's what you need to build off. That's better than winning six games and going, yeah, I don't know if Richardson can play. Matt, I saw you uh, made a list of the top ten quarterbacks right now in the NFL, which I'm sure everyone in your mentions and in your comments agreed with you because you're never wrong and you can never change your mind. So, you know, when it comes to week 16, one of these quarterbacks maybe isn't where they're supposed to be. They're going to remind you, hey, you had him near. But um, when you look at that list and where you had Trevor Lawrence at number six, 
what was it about last season that showed you and gave you something to believe in? Because I do believe that it feels like this is the Jaguars' division here in the AFC South, especially with the addition of Calvin Ridley. Yeah, and, and James, you know how it goes. I'm sure about eight people bookmarked that, that story. <laughs> They're just waiting, which is fine. Good good for them. Enjoy that. Um, look, first of all, I think yeah, Jacksonville clearing away should, should be the division winner. I mean, let's just call it what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. And by the way, that should give hope for everybody else in that division because Jacksonville was picking first two years in a row, okay? <laughs> and then they got a quarterback and a coach, and boom, they're a team that is going to be competing in the AFC. Um, you know, I put Lawrence at six because I don't think you can make a case realistically that he's ahead of Mahomes, he's ahead of Burrow, he's ahead of Allen, he's ahead of Hurts. And I, I have Herbert ahead of him, I believe, was set. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make a case for him or Herbert. You can also make a case by, like, like Lamar. Lamar could absolutely be there. Like, if you want to put Lamar ahead of him, that's fine. I have no problem with that. All those guys can get really close. Um, I thought Lawrence, it was just really impressive to me how he basically didn't have a rookie season. I mean, I've never seen a bigger embarrassment at head coach in the NFL than what Urban Meyer was. And so you then bring in Doug Peterson, of course, who's a real coach. And all of a sudden, you know, Lawrence goes out and he's on 25 touchdown passes. His interceptions are way down. And, and Jacksonville had a good supporting cast from last year, but it wasn't outrageous. It wasn't like you looked at them and just went, oh, my God, they've got seven pro bars on offense. I think he's really a guy who this year I think could throw for 44, 4,500 yards, 32 to 35 touchdowns, and just be one of those guys. And look, in the AFC, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, you need to have that guy. Yeah. If you don't have that guy, you have no chance. I mean, you, you are not even going to be a playoff team. I mean, you look at that conference. I mean, you've got how many guys that realistically, if they played their best, right, that guy could be a first or second team all pro. I mean, seven of them. So – I think Lawrence and that and that Jacksonville team, there are still weaknesses. I still worry about their defense and, and offensively. I worry about the line a little bit. But in that division, I think they're going to win a lot of games. And they also play the NFC South, which is another division they might win a lot of games out of. So Jacksonville is going to have, I think, a very good record. And just to follow up on this list, I know one of the things that Colts fans have latched onto with Shane Steichen is what he was able to do with Jalen Hurts. And everyone looks at last season because that was the MVP caliber season and he was you know, an all-pro, those things. However, how much do you think the 2021 season could be a blueprint for what he might be able to do with, with Richardson in his first season? Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable. You know, and, and look, I, I wrote a big piece when I was back at Fanside last, last July and I talked to a lot of people in the Eagles organization and basically yeah, I thought they had a really good offseason. The funny thing was, I said some people like fairly high, high up in the building say to me, look, make it clear that we're not ready to go to the Super Bowl yet. This is not that. And, of course, then they, they immediately <laughs> went to the Super Bowl. And so I still somehow undersold them because they undersold themselves. But the point is they didn't even expect Hurts to make the leap that he made last year. But what they did try to do was they went out and they were very intentional about trying to make sure that he had every opportunity to, to succeed. Excuse me. They went out and they got A.J. Brown. That line is really top-notch. You know, they they made sure that they were going to be able to evaluate Jalen Hurts based on really good surroundings. And I think for the Colts, this year is probably going to be more like that 2021 year where you watched Hurts and you said, okay, you know what, I don't know what he can be, but there's something there with this kid. He can throw the ball. He's got you know, he's got some wheels on him. Clearly, the, you know, the, the mental side of it's there. That's no issue. And so even though the Eagles that year, you know, they'd be the first to tell you. Like, they beat nobody that year. They got in the playoffs because they beat a bunch of bad teams, and then they got smoked by Tampa in the playoffs. But they looked at that as, okay, 
this was a, a positive experience for us. And I think this year with Richardson, you know what? If, if he completes 60% of his throws, 58% of his throws, but as the year goes on, he's getting better and better. Then I think it's on, on Ballard and company next offseason to go, all right, you know what? We got we to gotta actually spend on some receivers here. We got we to gotta really go get them some help. We've got to make sure that offensive line is back to what it was a couple of years ago and it doesn't look anything like it looked a year ago. Like, that's where I think Steichen and Ballard and the rest of the front office and, and staff and Indy, they have to be able to do that so they can properly evaluate Richardson and what he's good at and what he's not good at and not just look at it and go, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, he, he was on his back 40% of the dropbacks. Matt Verderam with us, covers the NFL nationally for Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Verderam. Uh, how soon before the ESPN and NFL Network alike uh, pick the Chargers to win the AFC West? I'm just kidding. Um, but when you, look at, when, <laughs> when you look at where rookie contracts are for quarterbacks, because that's a real window that the Colts are going to be focusing on soon. And you yep. look at the Chargers with Justin Herbert and, and obviously the Bengals with Joe Burrow. How understated or overstated is the importance of excelling or spending in the right spots with that rookie contract? And then going back to the Colts with Anthony Richardson, they're going to have some decisions to make in the coming months with Jonathan Taylor, with Michael Pittman Jr. They're very much in that boat. Have have the Chargers and Bengals missed the boat in that regard? And, And how do the Colts either avoid that or prioritize their money? Well, I think it's going to be really interesting. You know, I actually, I haven't even written this yet, but I've talked to a bunch of agents around the league and asked them, if you represented Burrow or Herbert, what would you be looking for? Now that you've seen all these contracts, what would be your your you know goal for a contract? And almost to a man, it was $60 million a year, which I don't know if they're going to get that, but that's going to be the goal. Now, I think Burrow probably gets a little more than Herbert, and it's going to be really fascinating with, with those two in particular when you factor in that those are franchises that are not exactly – teams that throw around billions of dollars for fun. Sure. Okay, so there's a reason the Bengals named their stadium for the first time last year. <laughs> I mean, I, I had one agent flat out tell me, like, he really believes that when they sign Burrow, it's going to take a small bank loan to make it happen. Like, that they're going to have to do it. So the point of all that is, yeah, no, it's a real thing. I mean, when you – you know, the one thing about signing players to big guaranteed money, which, of course, when you're talking about a quarterback on a second deal who's good, I mean, you're, you're paying huge guaranteed money. When you do that – any guaranteed money has to go in escrow at the time of signing. And so it's not just about your salary cap. It's about the cash budget for these owners. And that is a huge, huge chunk of money that's coming out right away. Now, the other side of it is, look, I think, I don't think the Bengals have missed their window because Burroughs already talked about, you know, I, I really want to try to do something that helps out the team. We'll see if he does it. The Chargers have one of the worst cap crunches I've ever seen if you look at their cap next year. I mean, it is just bonkers, some of the numbers on their sheet. That team – they're in for a, a, a financial comeuppance, if you will. Um, but I think for the Colts, yeah, listen, you got five years of cheap quarterback play, and if, you, and if Richardson turns out good and you give him an extension, you know, those, that first year or two, the, the cap number could be held down a little. But you got to prioritize right now, you know, these next three to five years. You've got to hit on that window. Otherwise, things get a lot harder. Absolutely. And you look at a team like Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens, they kind of went through that where it's like, how much is this guy worth? How much do we pay? But now that he's back, which I always expected, I was thinking to myself, there's just no way you're ever going to become really free considering how NFL contracts are set up with the franchise tag and things like that. I believe he would have had to play the next two seasons on the tag to become a free agent and then be right. able to have more leverage. But now that he has the money, he's back. He has the playmakers around him. 
What do you see in store for him over there? Because we'll see them in week three here in Indy. Or actually at Baltimore, you know, sorry. They're a, they're a fascinating team. Because on one hand, look, you, you have to pay Lamar Jackson. I mean, I've always been in the camp that I understand there are some questions in terms of, the, you know, they, they flopped in the playoffs and how much do you blame him, how do you blame the teams. I think it all goes around. I mean, you got to spread the blame. Um, but this is a team now, like Todd Munkin's coming in as their offense coordinator. They have signed Odell Beckham. They drafted Jay Fly. They're going to throw the football. And I'm, I'm one who says, I think, you know, in the past, like Lamar's never thrown for 4,000 yards. But some of that's the fact that he's been hurt. Some of that's the fact that they, their receivers have not been good. Um, well, they've got a pretty interesting crew here. Now, Beckham's got to stay on the field, and Flowers has to prove he's not a bust. But this is an interesting team. The one thing I would say, though, that does worry me with Baltimore, when you pay a quarterback to that extent, that quarterback has to cover up a lot of other sins. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And that defense in Baltimore lost a lot this offseason. Peters is gone. Justin Houston is gone. They declined the option on Queen, who's still there for a year, but he, you would think, is going to be gone after the season. Who knows? Maybe they move in the summer. Um, Pierre Paul, who's a nice veteran, this, he's gone. Like, you kind of look at them and go, can Jackson elevate them in a way where they can just overcome it if that defense is 23rd in the league? I mean, can, can they do that? Can they play that way? Can he stay on the field for 17 games? He obviously hasn't been able to the last couple of years. So I worry that their windows closed a little bit if Jackson doesn't just unbelievably elevate them. But I've seen so much from him that obviously I wouldn't count that out. I wouldn't be shocked if he goes out and has an MVP caliber year. But they may need that from him in a great conference with a lesser defense. Matt, when you look big picture at the AFC – post-NFL draft, post-free agency, and you obviously have your list of top 10 quarterbacks across the league, but focusing specifically on the AFC, do we see the first back-to-back since the Patriots? Um, It's always, look, if you said to me would I pick the Chiefs or the field, I mean, I would take the field. I think most people would. But right. at the same point, if you asked me what, to pick one team, I would probably pick Kansas City. I just think Mahomes is at a point now where if you'd like to bet against him, go ahead. I I was the guy who last year was like, look, I think the Chiefs are in a little bit of a rebuild, or a reload, I guess is the better term. And I think, you know, the Bills are the team. And I think the Bills were early, and then Von Miller got hurt, and everything kind of kind of went sideways on them. But when you look at the Chiefs, you just look at them, you've got a really good offensive line. Mahomes is fantastic. Andy Reid's fantastic. Defensively, they're better than people give them credit for. They've got a lot of good young players in that defense. They're really well coached with Steve Spagnuolo. You know, they're, they're really good on teams with Butker and Townsend. Like, it just – look, I think that certainly the Bengals could beat them. The Bills are a threat. The Dolphins, I think, are a threat. Jacksonville's interesting. I don't know if I think they're a, a huge threat yet, but I think they're getting there. But, yeah, if I had to pick a team, I actually do think that they're a, a – comparatively to other teams who have tried to repeat, I think they're a good bet. They're just – they're loaded, and they've got the best player in the world. It's the most important position. Does he have the best contract in the sport right now? I, I bet the Chiefs would tell you yes. I was going to say because I'm like that. He's. It seems like they really hit yeah. on that contract. Mm-hmm. It gets better every year. Well, you know, the funny thing was, I remember talking to Lee Steinberg, who's one of his representatives. He's represented by Steinberg and Chris Cap and so on and so forth. But I remember the year after they won their first Super Bowl. So we're talking like the combine of 2020, and he was just becoming eligible for an extension. And I actually. Was talking to, to Lee on you know, on the record. He said, "Hey, you know, how, how are things going with the contract? Yeah, they're good." And he, he essentially said to me, "Well, 
know, we got to, you know, Mahomes has got to get paid, got to get his money, but they've got to keep some flexibility here because he wants to win. And that's what ended up happening where, you know, how often do you say a guy got $450 million in a contract and people are like, well, he's underpaid. (laughs) But that's what happened. But he knew by signing. So for an example, like everybody's talking about DeAndre Hopkins. If the Bills go out and get DeAndre Hopkins, they are going to have to push money down the line and they're going to have to really face a huge cap crunch next year. They already have nine players next year making over $10 million. And Allen's making 48 against cap next year. If they push money down the cap for 2024, they're, they're cutting real players next season. If the Chiefs want to move money around Mahomes, all they have to do is basically flip a switch. $23 million goes down the rest of his contract, but what do they care? There's eight years left on it. I mean, it, so what? They're adding $3 million next year to his cap number? Like, what, is it, what does it matter? It, it's, a, it's irrelevant to them. So it's not so much the average value. It's the length of the contract, and Mahomes knew it when he signed it. And I think, you know, we've heard so much about this all season about, well, they've got to restructure. i got to tell you, talking to people that I know in, in and around that situation, that's much more of a media creation than it is a worry of either side with that. They're, they're pretty fine with it, and they'll adjust it eventually. But, um, yeah, that contract is proven to be worth its weight in gold for, uh, for both sides and certainly the Chiefs. Speaking of DeAndre Hopkins, Matt Verdram, SI now taking some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. We, we joked a little bit. We were out at the, the Speedway for Carb Day ahead of the Indy 500 about, oh, man, DeAndre Hopkins, Colts have some cap space. Maybe they'll go. I mean, if I was him, I, I wouldn't come here because of where the franchise is at right now. <laughs> but even, sure. but mo- maybe money matters to him. Let's take Indianapolis out of it, though, because I don't think that that's a real destination in his mind. Where is that balance with Hopkins being 30 years old? of I want to go championship chase or I want to have another payday in my life? And if so, what are his options? Well, I think, look, if he wants to go to Buffalo or Kansas City, the reality of that is he, he's not getting paid $20 million. I, it's just not going to happen. I would be floored if that happened. Um, and if he wants a combination of, hey, I want to get paid, but I also want to be a pretty good team and the Lions have a bunch of cap space. Um, you know, Jameson Williams is suspended for the early part of the year. Maybe that's a good fit. Uh, Goff had a great year last year. You know, you, you, people have talked about Cleveland. Cleveland's interesting. I don't know that you'd call them a contender, but, you know, if they added Hopkins, you have him and Peoples Jones and Amari Cooper, okay. I mean, that's it's not a bad team. Um, I, I think for Hopkins, though, if he wants to be on a team that can genuinely win the Super Bowl, I mean, one of these top, you know, five to eight teams, he's going to have to take a contract that's somewhat creative. Maybe it's loaded with incentives. Maybe – Maybe it's a contract that they, they, they actually put a second year on it so you can kind of spread the hits out. Um, but keep in mind, a team that acquired him via trade from the Cardinals would have been paying $19 million this year. It was nineteen five, And the next year it would have been like fourteen five, And nobody was willing to do it. So now you had to give up a pick in that sense, but you weren't giving up a big pick and you wouldn't have had to compete with a free agency market. And still nobody did it. So my, my question is, I know Beckham got 15 plus, you know, three in incentives. That was a lot earlier in the offseason. If Hopkins is willing to go to a bad team with a bunch of money, sure, maybe he gets more than Beckham. But he, if he wants to go to a team that's going to play in a January, and I think that at this point is very, I think would matter at least somewhat, he's going to have to get creative or he's going to have to say, you know what, maybe I take less for one year. I load up on numbers. I load up on exposure. I play deep into the season. Maybe I get my ring. And then next year, I cash in big one more time. 
Matt, thank you very much for making some time with us. Seriously, even though I'll, I'll, I'll miss the localized Chiefs coverage, I know you'll still sprinkle it in on the timeline, but very happy for you with the National Leap to Sports Illustrated, and hopefully we're able to talk again down the line. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much. Anytime. That's Matt Verderam. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at, Mur- at Matt Verderam of SI Now. Does a great job covering the NFL nationally. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Still here in the DriveHubilock.com studio. Like I said yesterday, I haven't been kicked out yet. You know, Jimmy and Eddie have been gracious enough to let me keep coming back, which is fun. Um, we have my buddy Nate Atkins from Indie Star covering the Colts alongside me. Nate, how you doing? Doing good, man. It's a gorgeous day out here in Indy, and I uh, it was nice to this morning get out to Eagle Creek State Park, go on a run, and drive by the Colts facility and have a day of not going there just to take a break this time of year. But then we'll be back out there Friday and out in the heat and seeing them practice and uh, kind of seeing how this whole thing comes together. So for the listeners out there, I did none of that. I slept in. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get up until about 45 minutes before this show began at 12. And so a uh, quick shower and out the door. But, Nate, I guess enough about me. Quarterbacks is what we're talking about, what we're always going to be talking about. What has been your impression of Anthony Richardson so far and maybe the gap that he has to – take or, or or leap to you know to kind of get ready for his rookie season yeah it's been just neat to see anthony kind of show up and it's like a just a young kid in his first day in a new job the first professional job and it kind of has that feel to everything that he's done so far from you know when he showed up the day after the draft with you know all his family and friends and supporters and uh kind of walking through the hall kind of just wide-eyed and uh, kind of blown away by it all. And then the point where he's sort of transitioning into being a little bit more, you know, he's, he's like a kid off it. At, 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 he's gone to college, but it's still kind of that feel of a kid kind of going away from home for the first time since he grew up in Gainesville, went to Florida there, you know, kind of lived right around home. This is the first time he's really uh, left that home area, the nest. And so, you know, just funny to hear him talk about going to Walgreens and, uh, and buying deodorant and soap. And that was kind of like the, the, way he's checked out Indianapolis so far, but then how he's kind of moved from that to blocking into, you know, getting copies of the playbook and diving into that. And, you know, even just some of the early moments of him connecting with Josh Downs and trying to build a connection there. And then all the ways he's just trying to kind of catch up in hyperspeed as a guy who, of course, we know had 13 starts in college and, you know, just turned 21 this month. So he's, he's trying to accelerate this growth. Uh, process and it's going to be it's going to be a process the entire year but it's one of those where at least you're hopeful that you know he's come in with sort of that right attitude of you know he doesn't he doesn't strike you as a guy who feels like he's made it because he was the number four pick in the draft he's out here really being a perfectionist after every single throw and every rep uh, you know like we said meeting Josh Downs up in a parking lot to throw diving into the playbook None of it's a guarantee of anything other than that it's the kind of vibes you want to see from a guy who knows he's trying to get somewhere rather than believes he already is at that place. Nate, how long can Anthony Richardson walk around Indy and go to Walgreens before people start to recognize him? Because I don't know how long that will last with more things coming up for fans to see and dive into and just get to know him. I mean, you're there when we're out at, at practice and it feels like you could release a video of him flat-footed throwing a ball three feet away to an equipment manager and it's going to be 
psychoanalyzed by every fan, good <laughs> and bad. So, you know, it, some of it is he's new, and you know, these football players are always a little different because they, uh, you know, they they play with helmets on, and there's so many of them. So, I've always kind of said like, there's other Colts players, and I say this from being out at the 500 and seeing some of them out there, where they don't all get you know instantly recognized, but it's totally different when that player that everyone's transfixed on is the quarterback. There just ends up being a sort of obsession to you know him as a player as a person and so i think those days are over that was kind of his first trip in dropped in a walgreens i hope he enjoyed it because that was kind of like the end of the anonymity and this is where it's just going to get really interesting to see how this young man kind of handles that uh the, the hyperbole and scrutiny that's going to come because we're already seeing it just with the reactions to anything said or related to him in any way as light as it is this time of year you know, as we get into training camp and fans are out there, as we get into the games, you know, the pendulum is going to swing so rapidly from, you know, this guy is, you know, going to get a bust in the Hall of Fame to this guy is a bust already halfway through his rookie year. And it's just going to be fascinating to see kind of how he handles that. Like I said, I think he's got a good vibe so far for some of that. I think he's been built in a certain way that makes it a little different than others. But you truly never know how this is going to go until they – actually get out there and they go through it. And I think that time's coming up pretty quickly. Nate Atkins covers the Colts for the Indy Star. Join us here on the Fan Midday Show. Nate, to build off of that, this is often an aspect of being a rookie that gets overlooked, particularly when you're a rookie that has such high expectations like a first-round quarterback selection brings with it. Maybe this question hasn't been asked of him yet, but when you look at the importance of veteran leadership within this locker room, the importance of Gardner Minshew within that quarterback room, how does one adjust or how will Anthony Richardson be tasked with adjusting to that understanding to an extent that, sure, he, he enjoyed a lifestyle change being in Gainesville and, and the expectations of being in an SEC program and everybody you know being on the edge of their seats for every play, but that gets up 10 notches and can kind of shell shock you when all jokes aside, the trips to Walgreens are off the table and, and you're now a, a bona fide superstar with high expectations on your plate. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating because that's what's so different than every other draft pick, every other rookie, is that you do come in with leadership expectations. We don't really see that for anybody else that they'll take. We'll never talk about how, and not not this year, about how Josh Downs or Juju Brents have to become leaders. Uh, you know, and there's a, I, I think the Colts were had an eye on that as they sort of retooled the roster that they. You know, they were willing to, to do you – know, they didn't kind of go all in. They didn't make aggressive moves. There's, it's sort of a treading water year, but they did keep around some guys that some thought they might trade, like Ryan Kelly, like DeForest Buckner. Uh, so, you know, there are some the leaders, the guys that the, the teammates in the locker room have looked to for a few years. They're not, they're not looking around now for who's going to come on and, and fill those voids of the longtime guys. You know, Shaquille Leonard will step back in, everyone hopes, and be that guy. But it always falls in the quarterback at the end of the day. And the, the past two years, it's been fascinating to see that because the Colts have swung, you know, big swings in two opposite directions, one on the traits and the upside and the physical talent of Carson Wentz, and then missed a lot of that leadership, just a humongous void that, that really hurt that team. And they swung that total opposite direction, all for the leader and personality of Matt Ryan, and then they lost, you know, the physical characteristics you need to really excel in a passing league. So with Anthony, they're trying to strike something in the middle while knowing that neither one of those is going to be perfect off the bat. He's not going to be this fully realized version of, uh, you know, a, a dual threat quarterback who's accurate and super mobile and safe and all that. You know, but he shows that upside. At the same time, there's no way he can be 
kind of a, a, an experience. You know, he hasn't gone through a lot of this in the NFL to be able to lead everybody in that way, yet there are parts of him that are going to have to. There's parts of him that are going to have to be that calming presence and that guy that becomes a consistent voice and really is going to end up being sort of a flag of hope that they're going to carry forward uh, as, as they kind of build this passing game. You think about a passing game where, you know, it's it's all all receivers pretty much on rookie contracts outside of Ashton Doolin and tight ends who are very young. This is sort of a, a passing game they're trying to grow organically, and that's going to be around Anthony Richardson. So while he is just 21, he's never started a game. He's only started 13 games at any level above high school. He's not. He doesn't have the resume that's anything close to a leader. It's a life that he's going to be kind of thrown into, and their willingness to even entertain the idea of starting him early, split the first team reps, and maybe even starting to start the season shows that like they're going to put this on him, and they're going to see how he handles it. And they've kind of tooled, you know, built their, I think their locker room and their passing game around the idea that he doesn't have to necessarily lead the entire team, but he's got to lead a lot of it, and a lot of it is the passing game, and that's ultimately going to decide their ceiling as we go forward. Nate, as we know in football, the game is usually decided, as cliche as it sounds, in the trenches. If you can't block or if your defensive line is really good, that usually helps you in the game. And so we look at where the Colts' offensive line was last season. The additions, so to speak, they made this offseason, maybe not as much as I would have anticipated. How much do you think they're putting on Tony Sperano Jr.'s plate as a new offensive line coach to get that unit right and make sure that whatever quarterback is back there they're not running for their lives like many of them were last year I mean you have to say they're putting an absolute ton on it when you consider that you know they've brought back all five starters at the end of last year and so they drafted you know Blake Freeland in the fourth round and there's a chance you know if Bernard Ryman doesn't you know does not take a step forward that he could he could eventually step into left tackle you know, there's a chance, I guess, that Emil or the undrafted uh, right guard out of Alabama, you know, maybe he does, he surprises us in camp and, and makes a push for the right guard spot. But right now, things go to expectation. They're expecting to bring back the same five guys that, that finished last year. And so that, to me, is a huge indictment on what they believe in the coaches last year, the coaches that they had to maximize what was at the time the highest paid offensive line in the NFL. I think it's a line that, Chris Ballard's admitted it was not very well constructed in terms of what they were trying to put into the new spots. Two guys, Matt Pryor and Danny Pincher, who had never played those positions before, and that ended up dragging down the mean quality of the other three guys they thought were stalwarts, and all of a sudden they're not stalwarts anymore. So there is an idea that like if you just get players at left tackle and right guard that they think at least fit those spots, that just have enough of a background there and enough of a skill set to where they can do the job without being completely out of position, that that combined with, you know, with a new coaching staff, just kind of a, a fresh season here. And then they're just going to really change some things about, you know, the way they run the ball, for example, with Anthony Richardson. There's going to be a lot of more uh, Eagles-type elements with the QB run game. That all of a sudden gets you know offensive linemen playing downhill more. That that's what linemen love because that's how they really build their confidence. The problem last year was they weren't successful at that, so they didn't build that confidence. They were stuck in obvious past situations where they were at a disadvantage, and then they were so poor in those situations that it just like crushed their confidence. That each time they made a mistake, often it would end in an injury to Matt Ryan, Nick Foles. Jonathan Taylor and on and on and on. So they're really banking on just this kind of turn the page 
kind of kind of new playbook here with Tony Sperano Jr. And it is a, it is a bet because you look at Tony Sperano Jr.'s background and you know, he comes from the Giants and Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones and the offense they built last year was tremendous running the ball. His track record is shorter and it isn't the type that you look at and say, you know, this is the instant fix to the pass detection problems. And, of course, at the end of the day, that's ultimately going to be the most important thing for building a passing game and for getting the most out of Anthony Richardson. So I do think they're playing with fire a little bit here. I understand why they did it, because they have invested so much in the line, even as they haven't spent anything there really this offseason. It's like the sixth highest paid offensive line in the NFL. But at the end of the day, it's true. If, they, if, they, if this team specifically is not good up front, they are not going to be a good team, and they're not going to have a good rookie season out of Anthony Richardson. So that group has a ton they have to prove. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Speaking of groups that might have areas they need to prove, Nate Atkins with us covers the Colts for the Indy Star. When you look at this being contract years for Isaiah Rogers and for Kenny Moore, they obviously take Juju Brents, a couple other action in the secondary with Darius Rush and Daniel Scott. Where is the bar set knowing that they do have the flexibility of a rookie quarterback contract with Anthony Richardson, but decisions are going to have to be made when you examine your cornerback room. They did it once this offseason through the draft, but obviously they get rid of Stephon Gilmore, and now here they are with Isaiah Rodgers and Kenny Moore, a similar decision time moment for them when we fast forward the clock's 12 months. Yeah, that's the room that's getting retooled really as much as any outside of quarterback right now is that, you know, cornerback room and even safety room. And you consider that they you know, they let they had Rodney McLeod for a year. They moved on from him, though, and they're, they're going pretty young there with Rodney Thomas II, Nick Cross, if he's able to step forward, well, with Julian Blackman. But there's a lot of questions there because, like, Julian Blackman, for example, ended last year at, at nickel corner. And I asked Gus Bradley recently what his position is, and they, they don't know that yet. So this is a process where they wanted to get young there. They wanted to kind of build up the pipelines because if you look at how they've managed their resources in recent years, that's kind of been something they didn't do enough of. They didn't. They haven't gotten uh, draft picks going at cornerback. It's really been Isaiah Rogers, uh, senior, who was really more of a kick return draft pick. And, and like you mentioned, he's now already entering a contract year. So you know they drafted drafted three guys there. And they're going to have to kind of see just what speeds they come along at. I think you should expect, or I expect, the Juju Brents is the one. I'd say he's the one rookie I, I think is a definite week one starter, unless he gets injured, just because of what's around him. But guys like Darius Rush, uh, you know, and Jalen Johnson, we don't we don't know what they'll be until they're out there because the jump in competition from. Uh, even from the SEC and some of what Darius Rush was asked to do and, and Jalen Johnson to what they're going to be asked to do in the NFL level is so massive. And there's really no time to kind of adjust to that. And so they, they just kind of have to see kind of how it plays out in training camp. That's so why I think why they did a double bite at it on day three, drafting two of them is sometimes you don't know who's going to step up between those two, who's ready for the moment, who's ready to be a pro and who's healthy enough. 
And so I do think it's a situation now where this is sort of a multi-year retool. I don't think this is the group. I just would be surprised if this is the same group we see next year. I think it's more of a situation where they realize they're in a little bit more of a long-term planning mode as a franchise because of the rookie quarterback, at least to the point where this year is almost a little bit more of a gap year for everything that's not just getting the most out of that quarterback. And so what it allows them to do is sort of evaluate the upside in the uh, you know the the floors too of these young players they're getting, and then go into next year and decide kind of what the structure that's going to look like. But it does put guys like Isaiah Rogers and Kenny Moore into spots where you know they have to prove that they're something that they want to invest in in the long run, or that they also want to be here uh, beyond this year. Because I don't think for either one of them it's a guarantee. Nate, I know when we talked to Shaq Leonard the last time he was available to the media. He was saying he hadn't done much running yet, which was expected. So when we went out to OTAs, everyone wasn't shocked to see him on the sideline sort of just watching. But for you, when do you start to have some alarm bells go off as far as his recovery? And maybe I guess a simpler way to ask that is when do you feel comfortable with him being back out there? Like, is, is it training camp? Is it preseason or do you just kind of wait and see? Like, how do you view his process of getting back to being the maniac? Yeah, it's tough to entirely answer, of course, about us being there with, with the medical information that they're going through. And it's a very tricky injury being, you know, a back issue that's also a nerve issue that connects to different body parts. And so I just would say that I, I would – I'm always going to err on the side of caution, especially after the way they did it last year, where he gets the surgery in June, he sits out training camp, but immediately when we got to the preseason, he's practicing. And he, the way he's interpreted that, the way they've interpreted that, is that was just too early. That was him really itching, and this is how Shaq's wired. He has a hard time watching his teammates really go through the dog days and not being out there. He has a hard time just leading through – talking which he does plenty well too but he he wants to be able to do it from the huddle and and i get that but that temptation you know kind of led him down a path where you know it ended up setting him back getting a second surgery late last year so i you know i think that the the offseason program has to be completely off the table just out of the side of caution and then you get into training camp and by that point that's you do the math on that that's probably about seven or eight months of recovery you know, you'd like to think that that's where you, you get into more of a conversation of bringing him back. But like last year, the issue they had is they would have him practice and they would look at the film and they'd match it up with how he played. And it was nowhere near. The two were just so far off. And so that, even aside from uh, from the risk of re-injury, was a problem is that he wasn't the maniac again. And so they need to, you know, really just bank on the fact that he has a style. He knows how to play. He knows how to lead. And his teammates are going to believe in the fact that he's doing everything he can to recover the right way this time and be there whenever he's ready. And it's more important to do that than to just get him back out there. So I think we'll see him in training camp because of the timeline. If he's not out there at all in training camp, I mean, I, I certainly would start to have questions. But again, for me, there are always going to be more questions than you know, alarm bells because really the most alarming thing last year was how early he came back and that ended up being the issue. Nate, you've opened up the Colts mailbag a couple times this offseason, getting set up as well again for a resumption of OTAs. Non-Anthony Richardson division, non-Gardner Minshew division, what's been the biggest thing on Colts fans' mind to this point outside of 
Who's starting? Tell us, Nate. Tell us. Yeah, well, they it, it's such an offensive minded, you know, fan base always right. has been. And it's, that's especially true when you draft a quarterback. So everything to them is about it is not about Anthony, it's about the supportive pieces around him. So everyone's you know, they've asked questions like why is the offensive line the same that it was last year? I thought that was the whole problem. I thought that was what was gonna change. And so that's that's kinda of led me down thinking through kind of what we just talked about. And the other thing that a lot of people seem interested in is the tight end room because they have so many bodies in there and most of them are are very packed around the same kind of age and development track of guys in their first, second or third year. And you just wonder kind of how that's gonna shake out when you also factor in that it's a new playbook. It's it's Shane Steichen's offense, uh, coming from Philadelphia where where Dallas Goddard was such a was such a big force, but how, how many guys can factor into that conversation? You have so many questions in there with like Drew Ogletree coming off an ACL injury. With, you know, how ready is he going to be? How ready is Delani Woods to take that next step to being somebody? Kind of how does Will Mallory, their fifth round pick uh, out of Miami, how does he fit into a room? You know, what does that say for Kylan Granson? And it, they're all good questions because I don't know the answers to all of them. You know, we're not going to know that until we get into training camp. And I think it's one of those situations where the Colts realized last year in camp they just didn't have enough pressure on certain veterans. They didn't have enough guys pushing for roster spots to where the spots on their roster that were weak, they weren't just weak because, you know, the players in them weren't that good. It's just there was no fallback to it. There's no fallback, for example, at left tackle and right guard, you know, realistic week one fallback because of the way they had built that. So, Adding a few more picks and a few more veterans uh, to that room, tight end specifically, it just opens up a little bit more or, or introduces a little bit more pressure, I think, on the guys they do have. And, you know, their idea being that these guys under pressure, they're either going to rise to the moment and push and, and excel, or it's going to expose that they're maybe not ready for the type of pressure you have to be able to thrive under at this level. Either way is a kind of important evaluative tool, and it's just a way for them to do training camp a little bit differently this year than last year. Well, Nate, man, really appreciate your time. I know I hit you up last night, kind of last minute, and I knew you would come in the clutch because that's what you do for me. So I appreciate that, man. I'll see you later this week to bug you and continue to annoy you as I head into my second NFL season with you by my side to mentor me now that Zach has ditched me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, hit me up anytime, and uh, you know, I'll hit you up sometime with some more uh, bad NBA Finals takes, and we'll see who has the worst takes as this thing plays out. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. That was Nate Atkins, Indie Star Cult reporter. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Here in the DriveHubler.com studio, alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison, I'm James Boyd. Having a good time on this Wednesday afternoon hump day we've talked about nba nfl now we're back to the nba with my buddy sam amico covers the nba for hoops wire he's been covering the nba for a long time and reading him since i was leaving high school so it's been about 10 years sam how you doing good Jared. it's uh good to know you've been reading me that long it's all scary that i've been doing that long but uh, either way it's good <laughs> no that's the privilege of it my man and so obviously tomorrow night we get into the thick of things when it comes to the NBA finals all of the 
you know, other teams have fallen away. We got two teams left with the Heat and the Nuggets. I want to know what is your early outlook for how Miami could somehow, some way, slow down that Denver Nuggets offense that obviously starts with Nikola Jokic. Well, we saw Miami play some zone, and uh, you know, in the Eastern Conference Finals, kind of worked against the Celtics. Uh, kept them outside on the perimeter, shooting a lot of perimeter shots. The Nuggets, however, have a lot of guys who can knock those down. Obviously, you know, you talk about Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. shooting at an extremely impressive clip. Jokic can hit him, uh, and, and you know, Aaron Gordon as well. So. There's a lot of guys that, you know, you look at the Nuggets and you say, we don't really want them shooting outside shots. But, you know, the further you are away from the basket, the typically the percentages go down. So, you know, I, I would envision Miami playing some zone, uh, really just trying to throw all kinds of bodies at Jokic and Murray and uh, doing it like they've done the entire playoffs. Nobody expects them to overcome anything. Uh, yet they've done it in the play-in tournament, and they've done it every series. So certainly I would imagine that Coach Eric Spolster will figure out some way to, to at least contain uh, that that high-scoring Denver attack. Sam, how much of the approach that Miami's going to take to this should be centered around, look what Jokic just did to Anthony Davis last round, look at the player that he is. Bama is a, a great player in his own right, but how much is he going to really be able to slow down Jokic? We're going to let him get his, do his thing, but we cannot let by any circumstances guys like Aaron Gordon or guys like Jamal Murray be the difference makers that bring home a onslaught of offensive power that ran L.A. out of the gym in four games. Yeah, that's exactly it. Jokic is going to do his thing. Odds are Murray's going to do his thing. You've got to contain the Contavious Caldwell Popes and, and Aaron Gordons and Michael Porter Juniors and Browns. You, you've got to make those guys miserable, you know, and, and, and have some of their worst games. Because the star players generally are, you know, you're not going to see an 8.6 rebound game from, from any of those guys. You know, they're, they're going to get their stats. They're going to get their numbers. There's really, uh, you just want to make your the opposing star players work as much as they can. And so often in these series, and we've seen this with Miami winning uh, through the Eastern Conferences, their role players outplay the opponent's role players. And that's so often what it's going to come down to. And, you know, I would imagine that, that Coach Bolstra and even, even Coach Malone from, from the Nuggets, they're both stressing that, that, you know, we need a little bit of everything from everybody. Uh, because if either team's role players get going, then that's going to be the series. When you look at what Caleb Martin has been able to do throughout the playoffs, particularly in the Eastern Conference Finals, are you surprised at how he's been able to sustain it? I mean, you expect a role player to step up a game or two, but there was a legitimate argument to be made for him to be the Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Yeah, I don't think anybody saw that coming. You know, and I, I, I think that the fact that he was able to sustain it was uh, something that probably the Heat didn't even expect. You know, like you said, usually a role player will get you going for a game or two. Like, you know, for instance, we saw Lonnie Walker do that for one game against the Warriors, and then he went back to being, you know, what what, what he's expected to be, an eighth or ninth man. Martin hasn't done that. He's been able to continue to be either option A or B for the entire playoffs. 
you know, and I, I, I think a lot of that is a guy coming into his own when it means the most, uh, getting into a rhythm and really showing, you know, look, I, I, uh, I, I kind of found myself, found my game. Uh, and, and really it's a case of a guy just being a really good fit in the place where he is. You know, maybe he wouldn't be doing this if he played for another team, but the fact that Jimmy Butler just, you have to put so much focus on him if you're the opponent, uh, has has created opportunities for other guys. And Martin has just taken it and run with it, uh, probably more than, like I said, even Miami was expecting. Tim, how does Kevin Love's minutes and opportunity for him change in this series, if at all, compared to where he was against Boston? Obviously, you're not expecting anywhere near the expectations that were on his shoulders in Minnesota or even in Cleveland as a 34-year-old that has established his role in this Miami team. We look at the minutes and his ability to impact things against Milwaukee, a, a series high of 32 minutes in that particular matchup against Milwaukee, 22-21, goes on teetered out a little bit against New York, but the same. And then at times just not, it took advantage of his minutes, but there was a bit of a modification with how the Heat wanted to play things as a whole against Boston. Does that increase or stay about the same as that Boston series for what Kevin Love's role will be for Miami? Yeah, I think it'll increase a little bit against the Nuggets uh, just because he's a number one. He's, he's been in the situation before, uh, he's won a championship with Cleveland back in 2016. He's been to multiple finals with the Cavs. Uh, so, and you know the things he he offers, which isn't a whole lot, but it's enough. And it's enough rebounding. It's enough keeping the Nuggets off the boards a little bit. And you know, for Kevin Love, just just as it's been all playoffs, if he can knock down some three pointers, uh, he'll he'll see an increased opportunity just because he has size. And he still does have rebounding prowess. He's, you know, and especially if Miami decides they're going to play a zone, you know, you can you could kind of hide his defensive deficiencies while using him as a rebounder. Uh, so I would suspect that he's going to get at least an increased opportunity as opposed to what you know he had against Boston, where he he only played a couple minutes here and there. Uh, I think that they're going to turn to him early and see what he can give them because. Again, of all those kind of little X factors that he will bring, uh, could could end up, you know, helping Miami in a, in little ways that that don't show up on uh, on the stat sheet. Sam, taking a step back from the finals and looking at both teams' paths to the finals, obviously the Miami had to go through a pretty dramatic one to get past Boston. And I'm looking at Boston. Jalen Brown, he's eligible for the Supermax. They're the only team that can offer him that much money, which obviously will be a reason for him to return. But do they give it to him? If you're, you know, Brad Stevens, if you're one of the higher-ups in Boston, putting you, you know, I guess in that GM chair, do you give him that Supermax or do you maybe come at him with an offer that still be a max but just not um, something of that caliber given how he played in that series and particularly in Game 7? Well, I think that you you you, you start with the max and, and see uh, where you stand there. You know, as far as the super max, that may be in, you know what he ends up getting. The one thing with with guys like Jalen Brown is you you have to look at you know if we were to move him or to lose him, would we be able to replace him? If we were going to trade Jalen Brown and you're the Celtics, do you say 
we're going to get back equal or better value, that would be tough. You know, I mean, he, he's he's an all-star, and and uh, those are the kind of guys you, you build the team around. And, 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 you know, what if you go out and get another guy or another three guys and they end up having the same type of game seven? I mean, I, I just think you don't want to make a change with an all-star just for the sake of change. You know, I, I, I think and the Celtics have tried. You know, they've tried to build around Brown and Tatum by getting Malcolm Brogdon and Gallinari, who, who was out all season. Uh, with a knee injury, so uh, I, I suspect that he'll end up, uh, you know, for better or worse. I suspect that he's going to get a super max and return to Boston, and they're going to continue to to build around the team. You know, I I, I think it's always it, it, you run the risk of getting worse when you make change just for the sake of it. You have to remember Boston had a game seven at home in the Eastern Conference Finals last year. They advanced to the finals. I certainly don't see any reason for panic, especially in today's NBA, which we really see as a ton of parity, you know, and, and, and you're always one bad bounce away from getting back to the final. So, you know, I, I, I don't suspect Boston's going to panic. I, I think that, look, we're going to have to pay him the Supermax uh, eventually, and and uh, it, it, it's up to Brad Stevens to, and the rest of the front office to, to build around Brown and Tatum. Sam, do you expect Joe Mazzula to be back? Because I know beyond what we saw on the floor, there has to be some blame or fault that falls on the shoulders of the coach, and they did give him an extension. I'm not saying it's all his fault. Obviously, he was given a, a, a tough task to kind of step in there after what happened you know, with the previous coach, but – do you expect him to be back, given the investment they've already made in him? Yeah, I think he'll be back. You know, doing his first time to the final of the game uh, in the lot that obviously blew that, but he got him within a game of the finals. You know, and, and I just think again, do you if you if you fired, you're not just firing. You know, you're you're pretty much getting rid of the stuff. You know, and, and I think that the players like and respect respect Rizola, uh, You know, and that goes a long way in terms of effort from the players. So, and, and you know, at first first playoffs uh, as a coach, I I think that you know it, it'd be hard pressed to say. You know, we, we need to let him go because he made a couple of hiccups here and there in, in some of the bigger games. But um, it's just it's just a matter of, you know, again, do we find somebody better to replace him, somebody we're more confident in? Or, you know, is this, is, was this just a case of a guy getting his first taste of the NBA playoffs as a head coach? Will he be better next year? I, I think that you try to bank on those things, that he'll develop as well just like you would a player. Sam, we're trying to find avenues as we look at this offseason for where the Pacers can take a step forward within their rebuild process. As you look up and down the Eastern Conference and you look at candidates for teams, because there's a lot of turmoil there. Obviously, Milwaukee has found their coach. Boston's going to have the Jalen Brown decision to make, as James just alluded to. Uh, Philadelphia has found their coach, but what's going to happen with James Harden? And you go down further than that, Cleveland... New York, Brooklyn, Atlanta. Obviously, we know about Miami, but we'll leave them off the table since they're in the finals. Where is there the biggest look-in-the-mirror moment for these teams? Like, who has the toughest path 
for decision making this offseason amongst playoff teams in the East? And who is the best candidate ripe for regression to where a team like the Pacers that's on the outside of the playing picture looking in feels like, hey, we could be in that playoff conversation next year, assuming all goes well for them in the draft? Yeah, first I would say the 76ers, you know, obviously need to take a look in the mirror and say what. You know, we keep losing in the second round. Obviously, they made a coaching change, hiring Nick Nurse. Uh, will that be enough to get him over the top? They still have, you know, James Harden expected to opt out of his contract, seeking a four-year deal, supposedly. Uh, that, that's something that they're going to have to weigh. Uh, and, and, you know, I really think if you're Philadelphia, you're thinking, man, Miami got to the finals. This really could have been our season. Uh, but we just we just can't get it done. And they have some nice pieces there, you know, outside of Embiid, Harden, and Tobias Harris, and Tyrese Maxey. Uh, I, I just think if you're Philadelphia, you're taking a long look in the mirror. Milwaukee, same thing. Why, why did we lose in the first round? What happened there? Uh, you, you have to think it was more than coaching. What you know? They added Jay Crowder. They they're a veteran team with with Giannis and. Uh, and Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, they they have to look in the mirror and say, you know what, what what went wrong here? What more do we need? Uh, because really, they were pretty much the best team in the East from January on until the first round of the playoffs. So, you know, as far as the Pacers go, I would think that the Denver Nuggets and Miami Heat being in the finals would give every team hope. And this is the kind of this is the kind of parody that the NBA has wanted for some time. You know, it used to be you, you used to know who was going to be in the finals before the season even started. Now, it's a huge guessing game. I don't even think anybody picked the Nuggets and the Heat to meet in the finals before the playoffs, probably even in the second round. So, you know, it's I, I think teams like the Pacers that, you know, have showed some promise early on until some injuries set in to, to Tyrese Halliburton, uh, I think that you know, they look at this like, yeah, we're, we could only be a couple pieces away. If the Miami Heat are able to get to the finals as a number eight seed, you know, just stay the course, fill around the edges. And the Nuggets are a good example of that, too. I mean, this program with, with Jokic has been together eight years with Michael Malone. Uh, and, and they've really kind of stayed the course, haven't made any huge, splashy moves. They got Gordon. You know, they got Contavious Caldwell Pope. Those, nobody, nobody thought those trades were much of a big deal. And uh, I, I think if you're if you're Kevin Pritchard with the Pacers, you're looking at that and saying, you know what, let's go out, fill around the guys that we have, and give this thing some time. And uh, as the Heat Nuggets have proved, anybody can get there. You know, just a just a couple of uh, uh, good players. And I think there's a lot to be said for familiarity and keeping guys together. Uh, that it tends to serve you well when it comes to playoffs. I just think the Pacers just need, you know, a little bit more time and have a nice, nice four players there with with Turner Hield. Obviously, Halliburton's fantastic, and Matherin is is also you know going to be on his way up. So uh, you've got it. You've got a nice starting point. You've got a lot of draft picks. There's a lot of things you can do if you're Indiana. Uh, I, I, I think this could be a very promising off season for them. Sam. The Pacers have been to the finals before, never won it. The Nuggets are making their first trip there, have a chance to win their first championship. What do you think it'll mean for that franchise as a whole and then also as an individual 
Nikola Jokic and where his career is and where we look at him as far as being one of the all-time greats? You know, it's kind of funny. A guy who's won back-to-back MVPs uh, a couple years ago in Jokic has not got really kind of that elite A-level super-duper star treatment. Um, and I think winning a winning a championship certainly put him up there. You know, and he, he that's not to say he's underrated because he certainly gets plenty of accolades, but uh, I, I think until you win a title and get a ring, you're really not considered amongst the most elite even of the game today. You know, today we talk about Giannis and, and Kevin Durant and LeBron James, all worthy guys uh, when it comes to receiving the NBA's highest accolades. But, you know, in order to join that group, you've got to win a championship. And just the fact, again, when you're relating it to the Pacers, you know, you look at, okay, uh, here's a team that everybody, you know, in January, February, even the beginning of the playoffs, they they, they won the Western Conference, the number one seed in the West going into the playoffs, and nobody thought that they were going to get to the finals, myself included. You know, everybody, yeah, they're not, they're not getting there. They're, they're kind of the paper regular season champion. So, again, if you're Indiana, you look at that, you look at what Miami has done, and you say, you know, it's proof right now that we're not that far off. And if 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 we stay together and, and just add some pieces, it could be where these teams are, and, and probably sooner than you might think. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Sam Miko with us of HoopsWire.com. Sam, you mentioned already the keys to how Miami could potentially slow Denver down, but it also feels like, and rightfully so, it's a one versus an eight. I get that, that the prevailing thought is still Denver's going to win this series. Like Whether it's Miami's gassed, whether it's they don't have the best player on the floor, the Nuggets have that. It feels like there's a large push, again, probably rightfully so, that Denver's going to take this thing. When you look at Miami, everything they've been able to do on this postseason run, the chances they maybe get Tyler Hero back, for them to win this, if we're playing that out, where does it rank in terms of just the accomplishment for Miami, but league-wide history to be an eight seed, only the second to ever get to the finals, but then pull off what many would feel would be a pretty massive upset given the dominance Denver's had during this postseason run? And it, it would rank way up there. You know, first play-in tournament team, obviously mm-hmm. they haven't had the play-in tournament uh, very long, but the, be, becoming the first play-in tournament championship, uh, you know, first number eight seed to win a championship, uh, they, they, and the fact that they're again they enter they enter as big underdogs as they have in, in just about every series except for maybe the Knicks, uh, just would be a, a situation that yeah we would we would be witnessing history. And I will say yeah the Nuggets are big favorites. I don't know that the Nuggets are bigger favorites than against the Heat that the Milwaukee Bucks were. You know and they they managed to to take care of that and. The one thing I will say about the Heat is they've managed to take just about everybody out of their games. 
at one point or another. Completely stop them from doing what they want to do. And, you know, a lot of that's a credit to Eric Spolstra, recognizing what the other team does well, and, and for the players for just delivering and continuing to believe. Uh, you know, that all falls, a, a lot of that falls on your star, Jimmy Butler, who who has, you know, I mean, before Game 7 in Boston, saying, yeah, we're going to go in there and win this. We're going to win this series eventually. He kept saying that as they lost, you know, Boston came back and tied it up at 3-3. You kept hearing Jimmy Butler act like it was no big deal, you know. So uh, I think that whole team has taken on Butler's attitudes, Folster's making the adjustments, and uh, I think you'd be silly to count them out regardless of, of what things look like on paper because they have not been the favorite in any series, have not had home court in any series, and uh, here they are in the NBA Finals. Sam, feet to fire. Who is going to win the finals and how many games? I'm going to go with the Nuggets in six, uh, but I will say this. I've been wrong just about every series I've predicted in the playoffs. So I wouldn't <laughs> bet on that. I would just say, yeah, this is what that Amico guy says. He hasn't gotten anything right yet. But if I look at if I look at it with, with you know, like we always say, the best player on the floor is probably Jokic uh, by a whisker. I, I wouldn't give him a huge edge over Butler in the playoffs. And then, and then you know, you, you just look at the overall depth. You would think that this is going to be Denver's year. They've they've been number one in the West since you know December, and uh, it just it just feels to me like they they're ready to win this, and they they're they're playing at an extremely high level with a lot of confidence. Sam, thanks so much for your time. I'll be sure to tag you and at you and message you if you're wrong about the finals, <laughs> as I'm sure everyone will do the same for me. <laughs> but all right, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. And you take it easy. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. All right. That was Sam Amico, NBA writer for HoopsWire.com. You can follow him at, at Amico Hoops on Twitter.